Hello, my name is Conrad French and today's episode of Pod on the Hill, Australia's only weekly labour podcast, is brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers, Australia's leading social justice law firm, championing the rights of everyday Australians since 1919. To visit, to find out more, visit morrisblackburn.com.au. Remember, Pod on the Hill is available every week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you have any questions to ask of the show, email us at podcast at vic.alp.org.au. Victorian state election is underway and, the, and Labor is campaigning hard to re-elect the Daniel Andrews Labor government. Our field organisers are now organising in communities across regional Victoria and Metro Melbourne. And if you want to get involved in our grassroots campaign and join other volunteers in the Community Action Network, sign up at thisislabor.org. Now, the Whitlams. Little song about a man called Guff and a little boy who wanted to be tarred with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the Liberals, so he didn't know why. This week, our guest is Labor member for Wills, Peter Khalil. Welcome, Peter. G'day, Conrad. How are you? I'm very well. Now, before we sort of get into the politics and, and your public life, I want to go back a bit and talk a bit more a bit about your, your history and your story. Yep. Uh, your parents moved from Egypt in 1969, and that period of the late 60s and 70s was a tumultuous time in Egyptian history. What was it that drove your parents to immigrate uh, from Egypt and Australia in particular? I'm very impressed with your historical knowledge, Conrad. That's <laughs> um, good to see. Yeah, that, look, they, they came out to Australia for a better life, like millions of other migrants, basically. And um, what drove them particularly um, was the, the wars that were occurring in the region, in, in Middle East and North, North Africa, and particularly um, for both families that came across, um, they had to pretty much escape, um, got in a bit of trouble with the government as well, and that kind of thing so there's a fair bit of persecution and so they they uh, i think picked the the city that was the furthest on the map on the globe like you know from cairo to to melbourne you couldn't get any further right so um they came out to australia and in, in a lot of respects they um like many other migrants they 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 sacrificed their own lives for their children um and and i think people listening would probably be familiar with that story um Dad was a lawyer in Egypt, mum was at university and, and she had to leave that and they ended up working in, you know, in factories and dad ended up working at Australia Post and um, uh, gave, gave up their careers uh, to actually put food on the table and, and, and give my sister and I a better life and they, they worked really hard and sacrificed and um, you know it wasn't easy growing up in the 70s and 80s in Australia but you know we, we lived in a housing commission initially and, um, and mum and, but we got basically affordable housing and we got healthcare, universal healthcare, and we got access to education. And they were all labour um, initiatives, if you like, from uh, labour governments, both state and federal. And that's pretty much why I'm <laughs> so committed to labour. Like, it gave yeah. us a start in life that, and I think millions of other Australians, an opportunity to achieve based on your hard work and merit because it levelled the playing field, regardless of your postcode or your socioeconomic background, your, your ethnicity or your race, you could achieve and succeed uh, because you were given an opportunity. That, it's that basically that equality of opportunity that we always hear about yeah. from, from Labor. Yeah, you mentioned something there about when your parents uh, left Egypt that they got in some trouble. Was that a was that political trouble? Yeah, that they found it was political. Well, Dad, for Dad, it was political. Um, he was a lawyer in Egypt, as I said. Yeah. He was critical of the Nasser regime um, and basically the Soviet uh, takeover of um, Egypt in the late sixties. He'd fought in a number of wars 
uh, in the Six Day War in 67 and in 56 as well. So did my uncles and my grandfather in 48, um, the wars against Israel. And um, he, had, he, he was mixing with this sort of intellectual elite, if you like, in, in, in Cairo. And that he was critical of what the government was doing and the fact that there were 60,000 technical advisors from Russia in, in Egypt at the time uh, and the way that the country was going and the repression. Uh, and then he basically got followed by the secret police and uh, threatened and all of that kind of stuff. And he pretty much realised his time was up, so he... he he did a runner. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> he got out of there quick, smart. Um, now, you did, did you have any older siblings at the time that were living in Egypt or or not? Or was no, no. Yeah. I'm the oldest, yep. and, and my, both my sister and I were born in Australia. Yeah. And uh, clarify that I'm an Australian citizen. <laughs> Went through all of that process. I did it all right. My parents uh, relinquished their Egyptian citizenship when they came to Australia. Got Australian citizenship. I was born in Australia yeah. and, you know, I checked all this with the Egyptian embassy many, many times. And in fact, I even, I used to be a Victorian uh, multicultural commissioner and that too was a office for profit under the crown under section 44B. Oh, okay, right. So I, I left, as soon as I got pre-selected, I resigned from that yep. as well. So I made absolutely sure that I was eligible to um, be yeah. a member of parliament or, you know, to run as a candidate yep. and um, did all of that. I'm still proud of my Egyptian heritage. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much... Um, proud of that heritage, that culture, uh, but, you know, I'm Australian and, and I love this country. And, and in fact, my parents w would say to me, um, you know, everyone says Australia is a lucky country. Mm. You've heard that saying. Yeah, Everyone's heard that saying. Uh, and they'd say to me, well, it's not the lucky country. We're the lucky ones to be Australian because yeah. um, we've given, been given such an opportunity and we should give something back to the country. So I kind of stuck in my head when I was younger, I didn't do much about it when I was younger. It only sort yeah. of later sort of germinated and then sort of flowered, if you like, and I could understand that maybe I could um, do public service and, and make a contribution in that way. But that was certainly something my parents instilled in me, the idea of public service. Yeah, you also mentioned that, that first answer about sacrifices that your parents made. And we've had a number of, of, uh, of people of migrant descent as guests on the podcast. Um, and a, a lot of them have talked about the sacrifices that their parents uh, made for them and for their, for, for their siblings as well. Uh, you, you talked about the fact that your, your father was a, a lawyer in Egypt and then came to Australia and worked in, 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 the, postal, in the postal work as a postal worker. You want to expand a little bit on the, some of those sacrifices that your parents made uh, for yeah. you and your sister? Well, he wanted to continue to do legal practice, but couldn't because it's a different legal system. Uh, we, in Egypt, it was the French Civil Code based on that. And here it's the um, adversarial uh, Anglo code, if you like, Anglo legal system, so uh, the common law system. So he'd have to study all over again. Couldn't do that because he had to, you know, pay for rent and pay for, you know, food and so on. So he, he, he worked. So in a sense, he sacrificed that career and, and continued to work. He got into the union movement. Um, he, he became a shop steward um, and also, I think, on the state executive of the Australian Postal Workers Union. Um, and, you know, so he was obviously very active in ensuring that you know postal workers particularly the migrant postal workers had their rights looked after through the union uh, movement and and you remember in the 70s and 80s i mean it was almost 50 percent of people were in the union yeah um, in union so it was a common thing uh, but he really engaged in that as well um, and my mum didn't finish her uni degree so when she came over here she you know she didn't go back to uni she got married and then had both of us kids so she sacrificed her potential career as well or her education in some respects uh, and worked in factories worked at the printing um, printing um, the reserve bank printing labs did inter worked as an interpreter uh, did all sorts of things just to, for us to get by um, we weren't overly we weren't poor poor 
um, because Australia, you know, we're pretty lucky in Australia actually in the sense that, you know, you, you get that level playing field, you get that sort of safety net and people who work hard, particularly the working class, um, are, are never in absolute poverty. Um, as long I, as we keep fighting for the, to well, keep those things I, I the same, think that's right. We've got yeah. to keep fighting for that. I mean, uh, things have changed. Inequality has grown in the last several decades. You can see that in the stats. Um, we, we've all seen that. Um, so that's a concern. But And that's why we keep fighting to ensure that um, we, we um, you know, resist rising inequality. Um, but they, they certainly made sacrifices in their lives and they put everything into um, giving us a good education and get, getting us a good start. And basically saying, you know, get, get a good education because that'll give you an opportunity in life. It opens up all the doors to opportunity, basically, education. And that's certainly true. Um, and my dad, I remember dad and mum were saying, if you just go, get to uni, get a, a degree, and then you can do whatever you want with it, but make sure you get that education. Um, so they were very, very strict on that and sort of maybe kept me out of trouble a little <laughs> bit as well. Um, so yeah, I'm very, very um, fortunate to have had uh, such good parents and, and have had the opportunities that were given to us, uh, as I said, uh, through those policies. Yeah. Now, this might say, seem a strange segue for our listeners, but if you've listened to me uh, host before, you know that I'm a bit of a mad Colin supporter, <laughs> and as is Peter. Now, when you were growing up, you met one of my great heroes, Peter Dacos, when your aunt took you to meet him when you were five years old, yes. which led you to a lifelong support of the great Colin One-eyed. Football, one-eyed, <laughs> the great Colin Football Club. For me, Peter Dacos was a hero because of his mar- he was a marvellous footballer. Um, but for you, he was much a hero for much more than just his magical football skills. This is correct, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, my, my auntie went to high school with him um, because my grandparents were in the housing commission in Preston. We were living in the housing commission close to the city. But I spent a lot of time out there and she took me to the fish and chip shop in Preston on a Friday, as you did back yeah, then. <laughs> and still do. <laughs> I think it was 1978 or 1979. It was his first or second year. He was still 17 or 18. He was probably in the film The Club at that point. I yeah, I think so. Running yeah. around in the background. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I, I met him when I was five and I became a, a mad Collingwood supporter. I think some of the magic rubbed off as well because I wasn't a bad footballer myself. <laughs> Never made it to the AFL. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I became a lifelong Collingwood supporter and we used to go to Victoria Park every uh, second Saturday. Dad would take me out in the outer. I'd sit on his shoulders when I was like five, six years old. He used to say he'd get bruises on his shoulders because every time Colin kicked a goal, I'd start <laughs> kicking him with my blunts. You know those shoes, yeah, those blunt, stones, blunt stones yeah. that you had? So he'd get all these uh, bruises on his shoulders. Um, and then we got members, membership and stuff, and we went around the other side. But um, Dakes was a magnificent footballer. Like the skill, um, the things that he did with the football were artistry. They were beautiful. They were magical. People would go just to watch him play, even if you know, they didn't support Collingwood. Um, but for me, it was a bit more than that because he was of an ethnic background. Um, and back then in the 70s and 80s, you, you heard it a lot, both the Indigenous footballers but also uh, um, players of ethnic background. The racism was pretty overt, you know, getting called wog and all sorts of other things that were much worse. And so the message it sent me as a sort of little brown kid at, at, at school that doesn't matter what your your ethnicity is or your, your, your background, your race, if you do, you can do great things, you can do... Uh, amazing things regardless and he kind of instilled that lesson in me because every time I went yeah. and saw him despite the abuse he would still produce unbelievable stuff and that's the same with a lot of the indigenous players as well the, I mean the, the magic of what they could do on the football field completely transcended the horrible abuse that they suffered um, at, at Victoria Park as well the yeah. famous one with Nicky Winmar so uh, that famous moment where he lifted up his shirt yeah absolutely and even when I was growing up dad would, would actually um well, as I got older, he introduced me to a lot of the sort of historical um, 
you know, record around colonialism and, and what happened in, in North Africa and parts of Africa. He almost worked for the um, African Union. Um, uh, in one of those quirks of history in the late 60s, early 60s, he got a job there to go to Ethiopia to work for the African Union, but then the war broke out. Right. War, so yeah. he missed that. Yeah. So we ended up coming to Australia instead of Ethiopia. Yeah. But, um, you know, he taught me all about, and I started reading Gandhi and I started reading... Um, about Martin Luther King and I started reading even Malcolm X and other civil rights leaders I got to understand that and my grade 6 teacher Mrs Hendricks never forget her 6th grade teacher she was a coloured South African woman and she um, she used to talk to us about apartheid South Africa because she'd escaped it and she would tell us all the stories about what she went through and what was happening in the country now I was 12 so this opened up a nascent sort of sense of social justice and politics in my mind as I was starting to read about this and she um shocked me one day when she said to me oh your dad and mum wouldn't be able to travel on the same bus if they lived in South Africa because dad was dark dark right. skin my mum was fairer skin and they would be separated and that kind of shocked me as a 12 year old I yeah. was like a bit put out by that so anyway it opened up this whole world where I looked at how the world wasn't just, you know, and and under, come to understand that there were injustices and that you had to fight against that. Um, and again, that opened that doorway into politics as well, in the sense of labour politics, giving people an opportunity and, um, and and fighting for the working class and fighting for the less fortunate. So that was a really important part of my um, development as a young person. Um, but of course, I just love the footy as well. I <laughs> love going to footy yeah. and watching the Pies play, yeah. uh, especially that 1990 grand final. That was a, a great one. I got to I got to sneak in there. I got a, I got a standing room ticket. The last on the Saturday morning, right off the Herald Sun classifieds. I called a guy, yeah, and I got it. Forty bucks. That was a Gee, lot in 1990, right? Okay, and it was one ticket. Wow. So I got in, and I um, was at the nor- Northern Stand, sort of behind okay, those yeah. goals, and I yeah. sort of jumped the fence and got a seat. Right. I was only like 17, 16, yeah. 17, So. Yeah, I still have the the copy of the newspaper from the the day after with all of the photos and everything inside. It still sits in my sits in my in my uh, in my shed there and up on the wall. Very much pride of pride of place that. So yeah, that was. I mean, I was nine. Remember watching it on the telly up 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 in the country and yeah, it was a great day. Fantastic day. My, my old man actually went for a bike ride for um, about five hours. He was a fairly keen cyclist and he went for a bike ride in his Collingwood jumper just because he couldn't handle watching another grand final. <laughs> and he, he was about probably 25 Ks from home and a bloke ran at him with a pitchfork and he was like, oh, we're home. So he put the foot down and he got there for the last five minutes. So. I, I remember three-quarter time. We were still up by 30-something points, right? And I went we went to the to the toilets and, and all these old blokes were there, all nervous, all shaking, <laughs> and, and they couldn't piss. They couldn't do anything. They just so, And I remember got all these old blokes saying, oh, and one of them said, you know, we've got it, and everyone turned on him shut and up. said, shut up. <laughs> they were that nervous about it. So it was a, it was a really good day for, for the footy club, and, you know, and the, the magic of that was was great. But, look, on that, just can I just make that point about multi, multiculturalism? Yeah, no. Because it, to, to tie it in, it taught you that lesson. Dakes taught me that lesson that you can achieve anything regardless of who you are, yep. what your background is. And and the lessons in sort of, you know, from Martin Luther King is that regardless of your race, your colour, um, you, you can achieve anything. And you should judge people on their merit, on their character, not on their ethnicity, their gender, their sexual preference, um, their, their, their race. None of that really matters in the end. What matters is 
the quality of the person and what they do, and you judge them by that. Now, there's structural disadvantage in, in, in our system, our political system, which we have to write. So I support, as a social democrat, for example, the quota system for gender in, in parliament because there has been a structural disadvantage against women, you know, against gender um, in, in regards to politics and lots of other areas. So there are things we can do in government to ad- address the structural disadvantage that has, has occurred over time and historically. Um, but that's an important point too, that, that our multiculturalism in Australia works because um, because we don't have to choose our identity. Like, I'm proud to be an Australian and I can still be, be proud of my cultural heritage. You know, I can come, I can whatever faith I am, whatever culture, whatever ethnicity, whatever race, these are the things that make us Australian because we come from all over the world. Unless you're an Indigenous person, mm. you know, we've come from everywhere. We've migrated from across the globe to this country and made it home and being an Australian is about bringing all of that to to being an Australian and it's a unique proposition in some respects and we don't have to choose between our identities not so not in the same way for example migrants into into the old world into Europe have to always struggle yeah. with where they are and who they are um being Australian means you've you've come from somewhere else anyway, right? Yeah. Whether it's Ireland or England or Absolutely. Egypt or Lebanon or what or Vietnam mm. or China, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful thing about our our multicultural model that it works so well. And it's and I always say at these uh, events and stuff, it, I hate the word tolerate. People say oh, you should just tolerate, you know. No, you've got to embrace that diversity because it yeah. actually gives us a strength. Um, it does. Um, and following on from that sort of discussion of multiculturalism and racism. Uh, what, in your view, how damaging? We've seen a rise of sort of right wing, sort of fear mongering type racist politics across the globe. Um, how do we combat combat that kind of politics here in Australia? Uh, with great difficulty, because the basis of that kind of politics is fear, and fear is a very very potent weapon in politics. It's easy to whip up fear. I mean, I could do a scare campaign today on your podcast. Just pick something and yep. get people scared about it, right? Calling and, winning a flag. <laughs> yeah. Well, not to us, though. We'd be happy about that. But um, I think the rest of the supporters wouldn't. But it's very easy to use fear. Um, it's much harder to rely on hope. Um, it just does, It's just a lot more work, right? And But I'm very cognizant of the responsibility that I have as someone who comes from uh, my background, the first one of the first African Australians in Parliament, in the federal Parliament. Myself and Anne Ali got elected at the same time, so it was all happening at once. Um, and then there was another senator, Kachuhi, that you know she's the Liberal Party, but she came on later. So that all happened very, very quickly. That there hadn't been that kind of representation. But I'm cognizant of the fact that I, I have a responsibility to always uh, n- not allow or resist the fear that the fear mongering that's happening. Now we we've seen this play out in Australia with the Conservatives. Uh, with this coalition government uh, in in the manifestation of Peter Dutton and, and home affairs, uh, the fear that he uses to, to scare people about um, you know migrants and refugees. and but we've seen it overseas in 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 much worse way. Like in Europe, a lot of the 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 sort of center left parties and even some of the center right parties have been cannibalized by the far right and the far left. They've disappeared. Um, there is this fracturing that's going on in, in uh, politics in Western countries, which is happening at an alarming rate, but it's it's actually concurrent with the fracturing of the media. So what I think it's tied because what you're seeing with the media, for example, your podcast notwithstanding, <laughs> very objective, your po- podcast. But, Absolutely. <laughs> but, but it, your podca- podcasts are great because they get to the truth, right? Like you can actually have a conversation. But in the mainstream media and, and the media that's fracturing along the spectrum – 
on one end of the spectrum, and I'm using my hands here so people can't see what I'm doing. Yeah, we're breaking all and the uh, podcast rules yeah. here. <laughs> uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, on the far left and the far right, you're getting these sort of um, biased views that people will go and consume their media from social media, for example, and they don't go to a sort of central public square or even have a longer discussion about the issues. They'll just pick up what reinforces their bias on Fox News or on the other side on MSNBS. You see this happen in the US significantly. It's starting to happen here as well with the attacks on the ABC and, and SBS. Why the why is public broadcasting important? I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. No, that, that's but, okay. but, it, but but because it provides that space in the middle where you can at least have a water cooler conversation. Do so you have the same point of reference? Mm. People used to watch the news, you know, millions of Australians would watch the news, the same news, effectively. And then the next day they could talk about talk about it. They'll have their different opinions. They'll have their different ideologies. They'll have their different perspectives. But they're coming from the same point of reference. We don't even have that anymore. Mm. There's people that can't even converse with each other because they're not they're not consuming the same you're source. You're not exposed to those kind of views at yeah. all, at all. And then they're we're, we're we're fracturing as a society, and the politics is starting to demonstrate that as well. It's starting to uh, you're starting to see that happening. In, in our political world, where everything we started with the twenty, you know, the twenty-four hour media cycle, where everything had to be a quick grab, right? Now it's a 20, 24 second cycle or a twenty-four yeah. word tweet or whatever it is. Like the announcement at seven a.m. in the morning is gone by eleven. Gone. You can't even have a discussion about it anymore in a in a rational way, in a substantive way. So that's very concerning. So it's a big challenge to our democracy. Um, and then you you've got um, the the right wing using fear. Uh, very effectively to scare people on all sorts of things. Um, and then the fear thing is also used, for example, on the dull bludges and all those kind of arguments. Remember the Centrelink fiasco? Um, they sent out um, all these automated debts from from the robo-debts yeah. uh, fiasco. I had hundreds, if not thousands of people, contact our office about um, their debts and worried about their, the, the debt notice that they're being given. Hundreds were false. Like they themselves admitted, forty percent were false, mm. right? So basically, they cast the net out and caught all the dolphins as well as the tuna because they were too lazy to actually go after the, the very small number that were actually cheating the system. They were willing to just give debts, debt notices out to people that had to. Then the onus was on them to prove that they didn't have the debt. We had one kid, sixteen-year-old, who came into our office. His foster parents came in, and he had six a twelve thousand dollar debt. I mean, he was almost suicidal. Yeah. And we had it reversed. I'm just wondering, about, of the hundreds that we reversed when we intervened... How many you missed? How many we missed? Because people didn't know that they could go to an MP's office, right? Yeah. Like, they don't know. And they'll get a $500, $600 debt, and they say, oh, shit, I better, I better um, pay this. Yeah. You know? So it's so fear and the way that they use that is very, very effective. Um, and then people are indifferent or apathetic to it. They don't stand up for that, you mm. know? You don't fight back on it. And then if you try and use hope, if you try and do the right thing, it doesn't get any media, Conrad. Like the only way I can get media is to do, say something sensational or, or get any attention. Yeah. So, so these are these are challenges that we have in politics and how we represent our constituencies, but also at the national level, how we drive the conversation, and and that's our challenge, and we've got to find a way to to get over it. You're absolutely right, and uh, you did a good good segue into uh, into where I, I I'm now at to uh, talk about our wonderful sponsor again, Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading social justice firm, have been fighting for your rights for nearly a hundred years because they believe that fairness is a universal right, not just re- reserved for the chosen few. They know if one person is denied the right to be safe, to be free, to be heard, or to be equal, then everyone else's rights are at risk too. 
And that includes you. So whether it's returning stolen land, protecting new mums at work, or demanding equality, Morris Blackburn lawyers help shine a light on everyday injustices. Because who knows when your rights might be affected. Morris Blackburn Lawyers, fighting for fair since 1919. To find out more, visit morrisblackburn.com.au. Now, Peter, there are there are many people who become involved in, in politics, uh, whether it be in ministerial staffers or in for political parties or all sorts of stuff, or the public service, who choose not to run for election. Mm. Why did you decide to run for election? Ah, oh, the, the toughest question I ever get. <laughs> um I think it stems back to that idea of public service. So, I mean, I, I didn't do the usual route or route to um, running for office. Um, I worked at DFAT. I worked at the Defence Department. I served overseas in, in Iraq during the war there. Um, I, I spent time as a, a National Security Advisor for the PM, uh, Kevin Rudd, for a period of time. Um, I spent t- a lot of time in the private sector, worked in New York, um, think tank in Washington at Brookings. I did a lot of. Th- I was an executive at SBS. You know, I did a lot of things in the private sector, and the public sector, and it wasn't a sort of the usual pathway to to, pol- to politics or political to the political representation, if you like. Um, when I was working as a public service, I thought I was fulfilling that um, sense of serving the country in some way, making a contribution. When I worked as an advisor, and, and I was developing policies, for, if you like, and and having that put up. When I worked as an advisor. I got a bit closer to the decision makers about how we actually implement or make the decisions on those policies. But then I realised it's only when you're actually an elected representative uh, and part of a Labor government do you actually make the decisions and implement and have that responsibility. Um, But also um, I thought I had a really deep sense of wanting to make my contribution one where I served people. I didn't quite understand it before I got elected, but now I do. Um, you, you not only represent you know, 180,000 people in the electorate of wills and 110,000 voters or so, um, and all their families, um, you're also representing them in the parliament. You're not the ambassador to wills. I don't, it's not like direct yeah. democracy where you have a town hall meeting and I, it, what, how do you guys want me to go on this one? They've elected me to use my good judgment, my wit, my experience that I've built up to represent them and make decisions for that three-year period. Um, and then they re-elect me if they think I've done a good job, and my party uh, as well. Um, and so I have to utilise all those skills to make decisions on their behalf. So, But I also have to do it on the, in the national interest. That's a responsibility as well. And they always don't always meet. And also, the decisions you make aren't always popular, right? So for, I'll give you an example. I... I, I came out very early and said, well, I've said very clearly that I support marriage equality because equality before the law is a um, fundamental principle, it should be a fundamental principle of our democracy, that regardless of one's sexual preference or gender or whatever it might be, they're treated equally under the law. And that's, that, that is my strong belief in that. And I said, regardless of whatever my, my electorate says or what the national vote is, that's how I'm going to vote, right? So sometimes you have to make a decision based on your own belief. Now, that one worked out fine because my electorate was very supportive anyway. Yeah. We've got a good um, uh, a majority. But sometimes I'll make decisions where the majority goes the other way, if that makes any sense. And yep. you still have to stick to that. So one of the things I've been missing um, watching as an outsider is a conviction in politics. Um, you know, th- there, there hasn't been that sense of belief or vision in the convic- and conviction in what you want to implement uh, in our government for a long time. And that's, uh, you know, in, in some senses, both sides of politics have fallen to the, the trap 
in, in that respect uh, because of the media cycle and the rest of it. But I wanted to run because I thought I could make a difference to people's lives. I, I thought I could actually change their lives for the better. And I, and I believe that a Labor government, a, a Labor party in power, in government, can actually change millions of lives for the better um, across the nation. I know for a fact that we can do it at the local level in the electorate because I'm helping people every day, whether it's a Centrelink uh, debt, whether it's a refugee or asylum seekers coming to, to, to my office and I'm helping them um, with their case, whether it's um, people who've got issues with the ATO or pensioners or students. We help hundreds of constituents uh, every week uh, with a whole range of issues and it's a really satisfying part of the job because you're helping them one-on-one, -on -one, right? When you go to Canberra, it's a different job. You're, you're passing laws or amending yeah. laws. You don't see them personally, but you know that it's actually helping hundreds of thousands, millions of people in many ways in the policies that you're developing and trying to get through. And that's, I think, despite the cynicism that people have of politics, despite the fact that people are very, very um, cynical about politicians, the vast majority of them on, on all sides of politics are going into it for the right reasons. We may disagree on what, how we would go about things, and we have our beliefs as a, a social Democrat democratic party, um, but there's very few that are not doing it for the right reasons. They want to make a contribution. I think that's certainly true, and I think we can make that contribution. That's why I wanted to do it. I wasn't doing it for the money, and I wasn't <laughs> doing it for the time because I spent less time with my family, and I, yeah. uh, you know, I was an executive at SBS, and I had all these other opportunities. So people thought I was a bit crazy, but I thought, you know what, I want to, I want to do this. And and look, to be honest. I'm driven to do it as well because I think I can make a difference. You've got to have a belief in yourself as well. Yeah. You know? Talking of your electorate, I, I live in Preston uh, now and, and even in my four years, I've seen how, how the air has changed dramatically. And I can only imagine how different it is to when you would visit your parents, your grandparents, sorry, in Preston in the 1970s and 80s. Now, the electorate you represent is, all, is very similar to that. Once yep. a very working class area has very much changed due to gentrification. As such, the voters have changed. How do you deal with a changing electorate um, and that sort of new those new voters that have come into the area? Yeah, that's a good question. There is gentrification occurring, uh, particularly in the southern part of the electorate in Brunswick and uh, North Fitzroy, Brunswick, parts of Coburg. Um, the, the further north you go, there's still it's still very working class. Glenroy, for example, and Faulkner are still some of the poorest suburbs, lowest median house prices that you'll get in Melbourne. So it's still very working class. Uh, but as you and Pascoval sort of is to that middle class band as well. So in some senses, it's different electorates, right? You, you've got different communities, yeah. different demographics. You need to meet their needs. So, um, you know, obviously people uh, in the southern part of the electorate who are wealthier, who have got more accessibility, there are different issues that concern them, whether it be on climate change, on refugee policy, whether it be on um, development issues, sustainability and so on. Uh, you know, other parts of the electorate, the focus is more on schools or public transport or basic, you know, infrastructure spending or, you know, education, healthcare, that kind of stuff, the hospitals and the schools. Um, so it, it differs. Um, there are things that cross over, like MBN, access to MBN, like yeah, yeah. everyone's pissed off yeah. um, with Malcolm Turnbull and the um, the way they've messed it up because of the accessibility on MBN uh, is affecting everyone in the electorate. Although if you're south of Stewart Street in Brunswick, you're lucky because you've got the Labor MBN fibre to the right. home. Yeah. Um, and I lived on Stewart Street right on the line, <laughs> on the border, and we had MBN and then we've moved to Pasco Vale. So um, I don't get it anymore. But uh, you need to be able to actually represent all of your constituency and, and But I think the key there is to be true to yourself and your conviction about issues. I'm not going to say one thing to one group and something else to another. There lies a path of, uh, you know, failure because it, you, you, you can't um, 
change who you are and what you believe in um, just for that audience. So I, I'm very straightforward with people about what my party believes in, what I believe in, um, what policies we should be putting forward. And if someone doesn't agree, that that's fine. That, with respect, we can have a discussion about it. I'm open also to being changed. My opinion being changed on rational argument. Like I'm not. It's not. Yeah. It's not. Um, you know, absolutely set in stone. There are some things that are like there are some principles that they're not going to change. You know, like the equality before the law. The yeah. prin- these Universal principles. Yeah. Those kind of things. All yeah. those yeah. things are, are, I'm very firm about. Um, so I'm not going to suddenly wake up one morning and say, oh yeah, the IPA's got a really good argument on <laughs> privatising in the ABC. That's yeah. not going to happen, right? But but on other things, I'm, I'm open to a, a rational discussion. In that in that whole area, that space that we have around policy development, there's different ways to do things. Yeah, right? You can see things differently. So how is it that we... I guess your your competition in your uh, in the parliament is the Liberal Party, but then when we go back to, to Wills, it's the Greens that yeah. who's going to try and yeah. we're trying to win win the seat off off Labor Party yeah. and off you. How did how do we, how do the Greens operate in 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 that real politics sense? Yeah. Well, they're a political party, um, and they pretend not to be. Um, uh, they pretend not to have factions and all this, but they're ripping each other apart with the factional stuff. Um, I would hope they'd just be honest about that stuff, by the way. But look, there's a lot of green supporters that are people who really are, you know, wanting to make that contribution, really care about the issues, well-intentioned. Um, when I have those conversations with them, it, it's a respectful one and say, well, you know, you want it, you want this outcome. Well, how's that going to occur? You know, the Labor Party, for all of its imperfections over 100 years, has actually delivered in government major reforms uh, and has changed this country for the better has made it the egalitarian country that we enjoy today, has given us all that equality of opportunity uh, when, when we've been in government. And the Libs have tried to tear down those reforms, yeah. by the way, uh, during their periods in, in government. Uh, and some have been so good that they've been un- unable to touch them, right? Yeah. Like Medicare, or they, they'll try. Um, and so with Greens voters, it's like, well, do you want to achieve something? Because I, I took to some of the younger Greens voters, and it's like, they don't remember, when I say, oh, the Greens voted against the uh, CPRS, the ETS, Emissions Trading Scheme, which was a a, a real policy that would have addressed climate change and helped us meet our targets for for Kyoto um, and and now Paris. Um, They can't even remember that. They're shocked. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, actually, the Greens crossed the floor in the Senate and voted with Cory Bernardi and the climate change deniers. And they're like, why would they do that? I said, well, because they think they, they weren't happy. They wanted it to be absolutely perfect. Now, in politics... The perfect is often the enemy of the good. We had a policy that could have been implemented, you know, almost 10 years ago now, um, that would have addressed climate change, would have actually helped us meet our targets. And they voted against it because it wasn't good enough. They didn't think it was perfect. And what did we get instead? We ended up getting Tony Abbott and his green army and planting ghost trees, which never actually happened. Yeah. So in some senses, it's, it's, it's explaining that the Greens will tell you what you want to hear, but but there are consequences to political action, you know? And, you know, it's easy as a minor party that doesn't have to govern and doesn't have the responsibility to implement policies for the nation to just say what whatever people want to hear. And you see this happening more and more, even recently. They'll just come out with stuff, um, the, the the topic du jour, if you like, yeah, and just say what they want. bubble topic du jour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's not how you govern. Yeah. What about, one of the things, I mean, I live in... As I said, I live in Preston, so I'm in Batman, and we had the Batman by-election recently. How, do, how, how have you seen the Greens 
interact with multicultural societies in that sort of real politic area locally? Oh, they're definitely targeting uh, and going out and talking to these community groups. But I have an issue with that because I, I've, I've got up to say to these communities, um, particularly the African communities, the, the Middle Eastern communities, the Muslim Australian communities, I hate uh, when they are used as a political football. These communities should not be used in that way. Now, whether the far right who demonise them or the f- very, very far left on the other end of the spectrum, whether it's the Greens, who patronise them, they should avoid both of those uh, yeah. outcomes yeah. because I want to empower uh, young people um, from these ethnic uh, minorities and these groups to actually believe that they can achieve things with their own skills, with their own ability. And I'm not guilting the. I'm not. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. I'll talk to them about how how hard it was growing up in a housing commission, how hard it is to get through the, the overt racism that I experienced in the schoolyard, on the footy field, and all of that. And in normal society in the 70s and 80s, it was in your face, right? Yeah. Australia has changed a lot. There is still. Uh, uh, prejudice. There is still um, a, a bias against people of, of colour and people who come from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, but they shouldn't be seeing themselves as victims. This is the thing that I don't like. Say the Greens might treat them, you know, as the victim, and then they'll come in and it's patronising because, it's like, you know, the Great White Hope will come and help you. Yeah. Well, well, they don't need that actually. Sort of like a white man's burden type. Yeah, it, it's so they're either being demonised by Pauline Hanson for short-term political gain or Dutton to, to use the fear card, or they're being told, don't worry, we'll pat you on the head, we'll look after you, come under our wing. No, I don't want people to come under their wing. I want them to engage. I want them to become part of the Labor Party, to get involved in politics, to get a good education, to become doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs and engineers and social workers and nurses and make that contribution to society. And then on top of that, I'll say, particularly to, to the Muslim Australian community that, that tends to be demonised a lot as well, you have achieved great things. Muslim Australians have achieved great things. So every opportunity I get, I talk about the positives. You know, the positive stories where people have actually done great things for this country and made a contribution because there's too many people talking about the negative stuff. And I say to them, don't allow yourselves to be victims. Don't allow yourselves to be uh, put in that place, used as a political football by the different politicians in Canberra from either side. You have, you can actually change your own reality. It'll be hard. You'll experience all this prejudice. But there are many people that are there to help support you and to support your journey going forward. Uh, and that includes the Labor Party because we want to level the playing field. I mean, the last thing you want these young people to do is to feel like they're being treated differently or whatever in a positive or a negative sense because of who they are and where they come from. They're Australians, right? Let's give them the equality of opportunity so that they can achieve great things in this country. And there have been many people um, from from various ethnic backgrounds who've done great things in our society, whether it's sports stars, whether it's doctors, whether it's entrepreneurs, you see it all the time. Parliamentarians. MPs, <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, getting into politics, that's a good thing too. You know, um, And for me, it was very difficult because my family, there is a, it's interesting you say parliamentarians, the reason there's not that many migrants, uh, you know, particularly first or second generation migrants going into politics is because when you come to this country, the first thing you want to do is survive. The next thing you want to do is get your kid to become, get a good education, become a doctor or a lawyer or a pharmacist or whatever. And then whenever they say, well, I want to get into politics, it's like, no, 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 stay away from that. Why do you want to get involved in that? Because politics in their home countries tends to be all about repression and yeah. fighting and the experiences that the parents had or the grandparents had. So they push people away from that. So I think that's part of the reason... Yes, there are structural... Unless they're already political, like your, your father obviously Well, was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but even with my dad, 
he pushed me hard just to be a lawyer. If yeah. I listened to his advice, I'd be doing conveyancing in some suburban <laughs> law practice and he'd be happy with it, right? Uh, not that there's anything wrong yeah, with that, but, but, but you know, yeah. I wanted to do more than that. Um, so I think there's, on both sides, there's a, a challenge to get more representation. We're doing better with gender. I think with more diversity in sort of uh, in our parliaments and our political class, that's a huge challenge because you can't really do a quota. How are you going to do a quota? Like Conrad, do you have like? Does someone call you Con? You got ten percent Greek. Yeah, that's right. Like, how do you measure that? Do you know what I mean? Like, how are you going to do that? It's really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, I think the best way to do it is to have people encourage young people to get involved in politics and get them engaged and get them part of the party, for example, and really uh, getting involved. Yeah. If you brought up your, your sort of your parliamentary career to some regard, there now, you've only been in the parliament for a short time. What to this point is your you, you feel is your biggest achievement or the, the thing that you're most proud of for your time in Parliament so far? Oh, the most fun thing or the most best achievement? I'll go with the most fun achievement first. Right. Uh, not fun, maybe it's the wrong thing, but but having a go at Peter Dutton's been good. Like you know, <laughs> you because know, I won't copy his, his you know BS uh, fear mongering. He gets up and he says, "Oh, all Lebanese Muslims are a mistake." I did a speech in. Um, responding to that saying what are you saying half a million migrants are a mistake what about all the doctors and the lawyers and the mm. entrepreneurs and the small business people are they all mistakes is my family coming from egypt a mistake am i a mistake i let rip on him yeah right because you've got to call that bs out right he's using it deliberately uh, as a as a fear mechanism yeah. right um and i think a lot of the best achievements that i've managed have been behind the scenes to be honest um, when I've been able to make representations on behalf of a number of uh, asylum seekers and refugees who've come to, to my office, get their cases uh, changed or make representation, actually get them a result, that's happened. It's been great. Um, I get lots of people coming to the office seeking that support. Um, or when I've helped people cancel their debts or when I've helped people, pensioners, a pensioner, pensioner couple lost their life savings because of a mix-up with the state revenue office on stamp duty, got that reversed, Little things like that that make a difference to people's lives have been really fantastic. At the more national level, I think being part of a, a Labor team, we're in opposition, right? So it's limited what you can do. But a Labor team that's been united and that has actually been really brave on policy has been a, a great pleasure to be part of that because opposition's not usually like that, right? Yeah. You know, we're coming out with policies that are really groundbreaking and brave in the sense that they can be attacked by the government, which they have been. But I think that's great. I think it's fantastic. I'm sick of the small target strategy that had been used in the past where oppositions just sit there and wait for the government to shoot itself in the foot. By the way, they're doing that anyway. <laughs> they're pretty crap. But that's not an excuse. Like yeah. We need to actually be presenting ourselves as an alternative government um, of Australia and putting our policies out there for the Australian people to, to assess and to make a decision on. And I think we're doing a, a great job on that. So it's been great to be part of that team. Um, but certainly the achievements... It's all those little things helping people day by day. Fantastic. It's, a, it's been a, a, a wonderful uh, chat with you this morning, uh, Peter. Now, that brings us to the end of the substantive questions for today. We do now have our fast money questions. Uh, now, so these are genuine fast what questions. What do I get paid? Like, do I get any money for this? No, <laughs> no, no. Just no, call no, it fast no. money. Just call it fast money. It's sort of oh. a, an old sailor century throwback for those yeah, okay. <laughs> of a certain vintage. Uh, now, the first album you purchased... Uh, first was Thriller, Michael Jackson. There's <laughs> been, been some poor choices. And that's not a bad choice that's at a all. It's a good album. Uh, what Labor caucus member is the most misbehaving? Most misbehaving? Mm. Anne Ali. 
She's a <laughs> she's so funny. Yep. Uh, in Cork, as I tell you some of her cracks. Yeah. <laughs> Best Collingwood player you've seen? Peter Dacos. Yeah, come on, that's easy. And also now that uh, the renaming of Etihad Stadium to be named after the Macedonian Marvel, Marvel oh, yeah. Stadium. <laughs> yeah, so. that'd be great. Um, uh, north side or south side, Melbourne? North. Yeah. Uh, that's the last. What's the last book you read? Uh, the last book I read was Remaking Middle East Peace. Uh, light reading then. Yeah, very light reading. <laughs> uh, when cokers run out of the sausage sizzle, sausage sizzle, what do you choose, Fanta or Sprite? Uh, Fanta. Uh, now, as a for, as a big tennis player, Federer or Nadal? Federer. Uh, guilty campaign food? Uh, Maccas. <laughs> and Vic Park or MCG? Oh, Vic Park. Yeah, it had to be, didn't <laughs> it? Uh, as I said, uh, Peter, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you for all our listeners out there for listening to this week's episode of Pod on the Hill. Remember, you can keep up to date with, with us on Facebook and on Twitter. Now, Peter, to the hardest part of the show, the the, the song oh. you on which we finish and why. Oh, that's really hard because I've been agonising about this. <laughs> There's so many great songs that I love. How could you pick? Like, I love The Police, Sting, Dream of the Blue Turtles, great album, got to give it a mention. Um, you know, Guns N' Roses, went to the concert at Calder Park in 91. Nice. 80,000 people, great, <laughs> great, great atmosphere. It rained, uh, Thunderstorm, um, Civil War's a great song. But um, Pearl Jam's my favourite band. Right. And there's so many great Pearl Jam songs. But I thought I'd pick a sort of a less known one. Um, uh, I love Corduroy. I think it's a great song. But Light Years is a great song. 